Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We talk NDAs, get on the Polar Express, Union Society's on the law, and a 3D story has popped up. It's all coming up. I just don't understand why, in this wonderful country we share, acronyms have to be turned into words that aren't words. You know, I come from a place in the United States where CIA and FBI, we call these things this, this kind of stuff. Here, you got to pronounce things as these kind of weird word things. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm your host, Rachel Firth, and here to raft down the white water of higher education policy. As usual, we have three superb guests. In London, we have Sean Waring, Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education at London Southbank University. Sean, give us your highlight of the week. Hi, Rachel. I was out and about this week in Manchester and Exeter at two conferences and seeing contrasting campuses and hearing all about the AUA and learning development. Um, And in Durham, we have Tom Brooks, Professor of Law and Government uh, and the Dean of Durham Law School. Well, the highlight for me uh, this week, I suppose, as a Dean of a law school was the news about universities facing the uh, criticisms over gagging orders uh, and how prevalent they uh, appear to have been um, uh, over over the last uh, of, uh, few years. So that caught my attention. Um, and in Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Well, I think this week's had a real end-of-term feeling, I mean, both in terms of our national news. We seem to have stopped obsessing about uh, Brexit for at least a week, which has been so refreshing. And it's the end of term at uh, Wonky, of course. There'll be no daily or Monday briefings until the back end of next week. So uh, Mark Leach has uh, um, let us uh, bring some games in, and we don't have to wear uniform today, so that's lovely. This week, we kick off with an investigation by the BBC, which revealed UK universities have spent about £87 million on payoffs to staff that come with non-disclosure agreements or NDAs. Okay, so I'm going to try and take a, a, an impersonal view as if I worked outside an organisation, um, but was giving an overview based on what I may have heard. Um, but this shouldn't be taken as relating to any organisation I have worked for in the past or work for now. Um, the anxiety about this report was that um, that, f- that victims of misconduct in higher education are being silenced. Um, and I think particularly in the context where we know that more BME staff bring grievances, um, that there are all sorts of dimensions to that, which um, would be unfortunate if they were true. Uh, there's a question about how common it is, and there's a question about how much has been spent on it. Uh, so the BBC sent a freedom of information request to 136 UK universities and asked m- how much they'd paid on settlements that included gla- gagging clauses. Um, and what it revealed was that 96 universities um, have spent 87 million on about 4,000 settlements over the last couple of years. My perspective is that it's not that uncommon when people leave as a result not of um, directly their own choice to go on to another opportunity job or, or 
other stage of their life. Um, I guess I'm not that surprised to see how much has been spent. And I think there's a great variety of reasons for why these contracts are put in place. Um, so I'm not sure you can conclude from the overall figures exactly what's been going on. But I do recognise those questions about, um, is it possible that there are some practices going on underneath that that collectively we'd like to know more about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, for many people who, who work at uh, universities, many academics, um, students, others, and also I think the public perception of universities have traditionally been as uh, something different from from a private company. Um, that uh, they have a different standard than uh, a private company out to, to make profit and and uh, you know, eat what it can kill, uh, so to speak, uh, in terms of its income revenue, etc. And I think what's been disturbing um, uh, in in overall. Um, without getting into any particular cases, is seeing a rise like this, seeing that they are happening in their thousands at uh, 96 universities, seeing the millions of pounds spent um, on these deals will kind of shake some of that faith that universities, you know, um, are something different from your your typical uh, out-for-themselves private company, um, you know, uh, consumed uh, by their uh, reputation for commercial and related uh, types of reasons. Of course, there might be looking at the particular cases. One of the things that, that that's true with most kind of legal settlements, there may well be uh, some good reasons on all sides for uh, some of these things um, happening. Um, and as an NDA, these would be things that wouldn't just be agreed by one side. They'd be agreed by, by both sides, to be fair. But all that said, I think it, it is an alarming rise, um, a, a big change in, in uh, higher education. I would have expected, I don't know what the, the data is here. I don't know if DK's got some uh, graph uh, nearby that he can whip out to uh, enlighten us. I'm sure we would be uh, enlightened. But I would have thought this is uh, a world away from where we would have been uh, not just 10 or 20 years ago, but maybe five years ago. And a worrying change. Yeah. I've just got my little calculator out, and I think that's an average of um, nearly £22,000 per person, per, per non-disclosure agreement. That feels high. I think there's going to be some outliers there, isn't there? <laughs> uh, well, well, actually, what I was going to say is, hmm. we have been in contraction now as a sector for a couple of years. Um, there have been a lot of staffing reductions across the sector. Some of those have been achieved quite quickly um, to maintain surpluses that have been successfully um retained. We know that in 25% of institutions, they declared a deficit last year. I'm not surprised to see these reductions. I think it is a different climate. And I actually don't think um, that the amount is that great, given that it's um, uh, it, pe people might be getting three months gardening leave plus three months pay in lieu of notice. Um, so I, I don't think it's that high and I don't think it's that surprising. Um I kind of want to separate this out into two separate issues because I think we're in danger of conflating two things. The first is um, extra contractual or contractual payments to people that are leaving their employment, possibly through no choice of their own. I think this is a marvellous thing. I think the idea of uh, actually giving people uh, money to compensate them for loss of earnings and to help them sustain themselves until they get the next job, um, I, I can't fault that. Um, as uh, somebody... Who believes in the welfare of staff. Uh, the uh, non-disclosures agreements are sometimes, but not always, attached to these kind of uh, settlement payments. They are designed, I believe, and probably Tom will correct me on this, to ensure that um, a former employee will not come back with an employment law uh case which will take serious time and serious money to argue against an 
and also possibly get some press. That last point prompts me to wonder exactly how enforceable these these, um, agreements actually are. If a former employee decides to speak out about the place that there's work, is that... uh, is that university really going to pursue them through the courts for the repayment of the money? Um, I know personally of a few cases where if um, um, a member of staff uh, going through this process, which is a stressful process, has got a really sharp employment lawyer on these sides, on their side, that these gagging clauses can very, very easily be abandoned. They're a standard part of the process and can be argued against. If I could close with a little bit of advice, if you are going through this uh, process, you, there is a legal requirement that your institution or other employer provides you with funds to engage a lawyer. Please do not go to your local lawyer, your family lawyer, or the lawyer that helped you buy your house. Please go to a specialist employment lawyer. The institution will pay for it, and it will make a big, big difference to your well-being. Well, I think you know, on the one hand, you have the government saying things like it doesn't want the public sector having NDAs, that it uh, champions whistleblowers, there shouldn't be penalties for this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they also don't like no platforming at universities. They want freedom of speech and all the rest of that jazz. At the same time, you've got uh, 4,000 different settlements that, that yes, give a, uh, might give a bit of a gardening leave uh, to people, but at the same time, uh, enforce their shutting up about uh, Problems uh, that are potentially problems uh, in the background that the university doesn't want others to know about, and I think that that um, you know that's uh, uh, an issue. Okie dokie. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Chris Butler. I'm a PhD student at the University of Manchester, and I research how UK governments respond to public opinion. And one of the cases I've been looking at is the Liberal Democrat U-turn on tuition fees in 2010, and I've been trying to understand how they weighed up the different policy options and how they anticipated the electoral reaction to those options. And I think it offers a couple of lessons for the current Conservative government in how they respond to the Orga Review in higher education funding, uh, which we're expecting to be published within the next few weeks or months. Uh, in particular, uh, just as how the uh, just as how the Liberal Democrats under anticipated the electoral backlash to their U-turn on tuition fees on the basis of how the Blair government has got away with their U-turn on tuition fees, I think the Conservatives may be more sensitive to the electoral reaction to the position they take on student fees from from the Liberal Democrats being the most recent example of government responding or changing their position on higher education. In fact, the Conservatives have traditionally polled very poorly among students, and I don't think there is much scope. Um, uh, for them to uh, get an electoral benefit from cutting or abolishing uh, tuition fees. And the other thing I talk about in more detail is how the graduate tax option may actually provide a way to retain funding to higher education, uh, which I think is of enormous policy benefit for, for the UK economy, uh, but also actually avoid some of the political pitfalls around the language of tuition fees. I'm Dr Alison Faust and I work in QAA Standards and Frameworks team. My piece for Wonky this week reintroduces you to one of QAA's best-kept secrets, subject benchmark statements. Over 80 statements that cover subject areas from accounting to youth and community work. They describe the nature of study, the academic standards expected of graduates in each subject area, and what graduates might reasonably be expected to know, do and understand. We're running a project to review and revise the full set of subject benchmark statements and we need the support of academic subject communities to do this. 
The statements will become part of our advice and guidance and will not have regulatory force as they did in the previous code. I also explore the implications for QAA's move to a new membership model for QAA published guidance like subject benchmarks. Are they a public good or do the members that fund our non-regulatory work expect exclusive access? Next up, Chris Gidmore, in an unexpectedly candid tweet, has revealed that he is keen to see the replacement of Polar as a metric for measuring widening participation. So DK, as you are the metric man and you come from round our way, what do you say? What do I say? I say that uh, the arguments against Polar, uh, which ha- um, has existed at, from 2006 as a way of uh, talking about the participation of people in uh, higher education that are domiciled in a particular small area are widespread and many. Um, he's hardly kind of uh, pushing against the tide here or surprising people. The slight surprise was that Paula does form a part of the uh, massive data drop that the Office for Students did on access and participation to help institutions uh, make their access and participation plans that need to be submitted by the end of next month. Um, so um, his uh, move against Polar is probably the right one, although uh, Polar is kind of very specific in what it actually measures. Uh, Polar is uh, 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 just a measure of participation. It doesn't pretend to do anything else, but a participation often correlates with um, other measures of what they like to call deprivation. Uh, so it's kind of in the in recent years it has uh, merged into people talking about the most and least advantaged areas when referring to to uh, polar quintiles, and that's not quite uh, correct. Now, uh, Justin Greening this week she said that uh, social uh, uh, mobility should be the primary um, uh, mission of. Uh, higher education, an argument with which I have quite a lot of sympathy. But she also, uh, Chris Skidmore's intervention, I think, needs to be seen in terms of that, that if we are going to get serious about social mobility, we need to have uh, better quality data. And I would also point people to the access and participation uh, data that I have slaved over for three weeks to put a usable um, set of visualizations on the site for you to play with and I would like to put on record that there is no way that the Office for Students should have released that amount of data in that format. It is really hard to work with. So lots of points there for you to come on. Well, actually, really glad to see that. Uh, Certainly as a London-based university with a lot of our students from London, we know that Polar's wildly inaccurate, um, doesn't give a good account of students living in um, areas that partly been gentrified. So we've got um, very wealthy areas, cheek by jowl, um, to areas where um, there are a lot of markers of deprivation, such as free school lunches. Um, and I, I, I think that point about social mobility is absolutely key here, because I think um, a lot of the debates around too many students going into higher education have got a class base for them. Um, it's the idea that other people's children won't go to higher education. I think the assumption is of the um, the proponents of um, so-called too many students into higher education. I think there's always an assumption that their student, their children will go. Um, and I think that the importance of getting this data right is that we will see the impact of government policies to widen or reduce access into HE. 
And just while I'm on it, I just love wonky data. And I think it's really important that we have this data and we make better informed decisions off the basis of, of uh, uh, data informed uh, decisions. Mm. Tom, do, do you have a take on this? Well, my only take would be, well, I suppose two things. One is I would uh, reiterate um, support for uh, moving uh, for the for the for the tweet, as it were. I'm, I've got sympathy for the tweet. I also am, am a big fan of the wonky uh, data, uh, which is a lot better than what I get from from the government. At least it's digested for me. So, uh, so deeply appreciate that. I think I well, you're very welcome, DK, <laughs> and that that it's heartfelt. Um, the only comment I'd have, I suppose, about this would be a, a comment about. Wanting participation in general, of course, you know, we are all very committed to uh, opening access to students from um, various ba all, all backgrounds, especially um, uh, those uh, from lower participation neighborhoods and others. But I think that um, when, when I think about widening participation, I suppose I, I, I would like to think of it kind of more widely in terms of not just the participation of people having access to uh, getting a university education and, and, and the benefits that that does uh, give them, but also uh, participation more widely in, in communities and wish that that was something that was taken as seriously as, uh, as, uh, as access of students. Um, so in terms of widening the participation of a community, um, I think, is, is, is something. But, uh, you know, that, that's data for another day. Um, I'd like to make a plea as well around this, that we get a better acronym next time. So uh, nobody understands what POLA stands for. Let, let's have an acronym which um, is either more interesting or maybe is just clearer. I just don't understand why, in this wonderful country we share, acronyms have to be turned into words that aren't words. You know, I come from a place in the United States where CIA and FBI, we call these things this, this kind of stuff. Here, you got to pronounce things as these kind of weird word things. And it's like you hear it the first time and you think, hang on a second, maybe American English isn't, you know, real English or the original one and, and et cetera. I've, I've heard it all, believe me. I've heard it all. But then I hear, you know, well, Hefke says this about the kef and the tef and the ref. I was like, what? You know, what, what is this? I, you know, what language are you guys speak? You know, anyway, uh, off my soapbox. I think you make a fair point there, but can I point you to the USA Freedom Act that was an actual acronym that somebody came up with because they clearly had nothing better to do. Uh, that was a, um, a particular highlight in this kind of thing. In terms of POLA, POLA stands for Participation of Local Areas, uh, which is something I had to look up. So um, I think it would do... POLA. Yes, Polar, if you want. I think it would maybe do us good to just go through a couple of the arguments against uh, Polar that uh, 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 data people make. The first is that the uh, the resolution is low, an area. It is the, or at least used to be, the mid-level super output areas, which are... Uh, 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 Hopefully none of you will have a clue what they are, but I do because I had to map the bloody things. Um, they're quite uh, big areas. They're uh, not quite as big as local authorities, but they are bigger than electoral wards and they can hide a lot of difference within them. So an area that is polar five can have pockets that would, if you had a higher resolution, it it would be polar one. The second concern I have, and this is something we get with a lot of data at the moment and something I will be talking about at the student records conference next week, is uh, kind of the um, astrology of data. We split it into five quintiles. There's nothing particularly magical about the boundaries of those uh, quintiles. So it is difficult to argue that we should tweet 
uh, that we should treat an area that has a 19% participation rate as being substantially different as one that has a 21% participation rate, especially given the likely size of the error. But we do, we split these into a polar one and polar two, and all of the targets are around uh, polar uh, one. I think as to go back to Sean's point earlier, that if we are going to do widening participation properly, we need to think about the individual backgrounds of students and their individual stories, rather than lumping them into one of five astrological uh, categories. Now, every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is the last in the series of Hidden History of HE. The English um, didn't use state power to set up universities. It's one of the curious things that very few occasions have the English actually used state power to set up a university. They've always bubbled up through local endeavour or through uh, benevolence. But there is an occasion, or two key occasions, when the English have used uh, state authority to set up universities. But they're both in Ireland. So, although there was an abortive attempt to set up a university in Dublin uh, in the Middle Ages, the key uh, occasion comes when Elizabeth uh, accedes to a set of uh, rules that, that you know, it would be a good idea to have a, a Protestant university uh, in Dublin. Uh, and the reason for that is set out in, in her charter to that. Uh, the idea is that knowledge and civility might be increased by the instruction of our people there, whereof many have usually heretofore used to travel into France, Italy and Spain to get learning in such foreign universities. And this is the reason why they want to have their own university, because they have been infected with popery other ill qualities and so become evil subjects. So Trinity College Dublin is set up with the idea of stopping the Irish becoming evil subjects. Now I'm not sure how uh, that goes necessarily but it becomes a Protestant bastion bastion, and therefore they they continue on that way uh, shunned by the Catholics. The Irish bishops refuse to let their their students go there um, and so there's a a, a gap in terms of education available to people in Ireland. Uh, And this all comes to a head in 1845, where two um, uh, different but very contentious um, government acts uh, take place. The first is that Robert Peel decides to extend the amount of money he's going to uh, award to Maynooth College. Uh, so Maynooth College is a Catholic seminary. Uh, it's now developed into a multifunction university. But the notion of giving state money to train Catholic priests is an anathema. Uh, seriously splits the, the government, causes huge rows, the pamphleteers go crazy, there are long debates in Parliament about it, but it really comes to the heart of should the, should the government uh, be supporting Catholics? And, and there's a lot of rather nasty um, uh, business. And Peel describes uh, the, the clamour against the Maynooth Bill as the most senseless and atrocious display of calumny, hatred, bigotry and bad feeling which ever disgraced any country. Obviously he didn't have to deal with Brexit, um, but there we go. So there's a sense of, of the, the disgrace, you know, the real problem about setting up money to, to, to educate Catholics. The other thing he tries in 1845 is to set up uh, a range of government-run colleges. So these, uh, which he, he has the idea that they'll be set up um, around the country. There's a bit of a, a clamour as to which towns get them on, but eventually they're set up in Cork, Galway and Belfast. Um, uh, these are godless colleges um, in the model of uh, University College uh, London. Uh, there's no religious instruction allowed in them. Uh, they're very clear that they've, they've got to be done. There's a weird moment that all of the architects chosen all copy Oxford buildings in order to build them. Uh, so 
uh, Queen's in particular gets a copy of uh, Magdalen College Tower, so they, they build them in a very Oxford kind of a way. Um, but there's still a problem that they're, because they're now godless colleges, they're not teaching religion, the Irish Catholics still refuse to send their students to these, these institutions. Um, so you, you end up with this problem that um, there's now a disagreement as to whether or not an I, uh, Irish Catholic student could go to uh, a university and be taught by a Protestant, uh, and vice versa. So there's this, you, know, you couldn't possibly talk about it. Peel again comes to this point that, you know, how, how can this be sensible? Um, how can we say that you know, it would be uh, sensible for... Um, uh, us to object to an anatomy being taught by Roman Catholics to Protestants or vice versa. Uh, what, a, what a strange situation that is. The Irish bishops um, are sufficiently uh, concerned by this that they decide to set up their own university. So um, what they do is uh, sensibly invite uh, John Henry Newman to come across. Uh, he comes across to, to start the Catholic University in Ireland as a, as a, a small uh, outfit to do that. Uh, and, and the key reason this is important is he, he gives some lectures to explain why it would be a good idea to have a, a classical education uh, and they form the basis of, of the idea of the university which is still one of the classic uh, foundations. So this system continues. Um, there's a, a federal university that looks after the three colleges. It mutates into a, a royal university which allows um, religious heritage institutions uh, in 1880 to join it. So that allows the Catholic University in Maynooth uh, and McGee College in uh, uh, Derry to join um, and it moves on that way. And interestingly, the Irish still have that system. The National University of Ireland is is the the, the inheritor of that colonial act in 1845 to try and bring um, higher education uh, across Ireland. Uh, Queen's obviously separates out um, at the beginning of the 20th century, but it's a foundation that they still have that federal system because of Robert Pitt. Next up, we talk about legalities and groups affiliating with student unions. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about our new Wonky Plus subscription, giving you even more essential HE policy insight and access to extra wonky benefits. Along with the Wonky Daily delivered to your inbox at 8am every day, you'll get access to the Termly Wonky Briefing and Horizon Scan and Sense Check about everything happening in HE policy, ideal for those who can't follow every twist and daily turn. And as a Plus subscriber, you get exclusive free access to our monthly event, Wonky Live, so you can keep up to date on all the moving and shaking in HE policy in person with Team Wonky and experts from across the sector. You get free use of the Wonky Jobs Board, plus everyone from your organisation gets discounted rates on Wonky events and early access to tickets, including Wonkfest, which always sells out quickly. For more information, contact us on briefing at wonky.com, that's briefing at wonky.com, or visit the website at wonky.com forward slash plus. An abortion group is taking legal action against the University of Aberdeen. They argue that the refusal of the university's students' association to grant their affiliation amounts to discrimination. So, Tom, as a professor of law and a dean of a law school, it would be great to get your take on this. Yes, yeah, so this, this group was one that uh, wanted to become uh, a student group associated at the University of Aberdeen. It made its application. It was... Uh, refused and it's taking um, uh, this legal action um, and uh, lots of concerns uh, expressed about um, uh, what the group wants to do although it's um, uh, the person who who's put himself forward to be its leader notes that um, you know they would not be you know while they would be wanting to, to protest various places that um, would be um, uh, you know deliver you know having the abortion uh, services that they wouldn't be the the kinds of signs you, you uh, might see in some kind of extreme things in the U.S. and um, and was you know very much a kind of a, a peaceful um, uh, a kind of uh, operation as it were. 
one thing so so one thing to kind of note about this is there was apparently something not dissimilar happening not all that long ago also in Scotland at Glasgow where a similar type of group um was denied um the ability to to become affiliated to the student union and um took legal action and uh and that was reversed and they're allowed to um um uh, be be a group you know my my view is uh, with this is that um, it's it's truly protected free speech um that um uh, there's nothing um illegal about uh having uh, a view that there should be a change uh, in the law uh, even if um you know one thinks that the that view is is mistaken and would not want to join the group um and i think that you know they don't have any right to having any members or being particularly popular or 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 uh or uh, or the rest of it uh, or, or getting very far uh, with with their aims but I think that um, you know given that there isn't uh, that the speech is surely uh, protected um, I I think that it should should probably uh, uh, not have been refused um, and um, should be allowed to continue again um, notwithstanding whether or not um, you know say nothing about the the group's views itself um, this kind of surprised me a bit because um, there is an interesting uh, precedent. I'd say nearly every uh, UK university will have a Catholic society. Uh, nearly every university will have a Christian union. Now, uh, kind of both of those groups, the, I mean, the Catholic Church, you couldn't quite call a group, but it's a thing. And the group behind uh, a lot of the Christian unions in the UK do have a position against abortion. And I do recall instances of student groups with those kinds of backgrounds campaigning against the right to abortion. Uh, now, it does seem odd that you would aff affiliate two uh, uh, religious societies that would potentially hold those views and protect and potentially act on them. I should say, obviously, I mean, not all Catholics and not all Christians would necessarily subscribe to these views, but they are, in some cases, official uh, uh, positions, uh, but you would not affiliate um, a group that explicitly holds that uh, position. Uh, I mean, I obviously think it is a terrible position to hold. It would not be a group I or any, I imagine most of the people I'm, I know would be interested in uh, joining. Um, in terms of non-sports societies and affiliation, there are a a lot of societies around universities that choose uh, not to affiliate to uh, students' unions for ideological uh, reasons. Again, there's a couple of Christian groups I know of that don't want to affiliate because of the requirement to uh, uh, democracy. I mean, I actually know of groups in which they prefer to choose their um, society leaders uh, kind of uh, via the direct action of the Holy Spirit, rather than an actual vote, which a number of student unions don't like. Um, I feel like the choice to affiliate um, holds, for me, elements of them trying to make a point about free speech rather than, than them actually seeking the benefits of um, affiliation. I mean, it's a very, very complicated one, um, a very complicated issue. I had a question about whether affiliation was the same as supporting or not supporting free speech because I wondered if the student union had criteria for affiliation which was maybe about other activities that organisations undertake so the Catholic Church does a lot of things apart from um, being anti-abortion so I wondered if in those cases the, the student union was um, that affiliation um, brought other benefits and 
the student union was within their rights to give or not give those benefits. And that was not the same thing as supporting or denying free speech. So again, I wondered, uh, back to the earlier point about conflating different things, if what's going on here is two different things are being conflated. Well, there can't be discrimination on grounds of, of religion. Um, and um, I, I think that it'll be And also, it's worth noting that it's not just the Catholic Church or certain groups of Christians that have anti-abortion views. I, I note this being, you know, rabidly anti the anti-abortion <laughs> groups myself. I advise the Labour Party for crying out loud. I'm very uh, anti uh, this, this this view. I wouldn't want to join the group in a hundred million years. Um, uh, all that said, I take that point. There might be some local reasons. I think that's a fair point. Uh, there might be some local reasons as to the particular way they they view the uh, how affiliation status is granted or, or not, but I, I suspect that uh, ultimately this is going to lead to um, the, the group being allowed to uh, uh, be recognized, and um, yeah, I think it will happen sooner rather than later. Um, so I have direct experience of this. As um, a student, I was the president of a university Catholic society in the late 90s. I should add that I was not a Catholic, I was just the last one standing in the bar when the decision was made. My one and only act as president was to uh, disaffiliate from the students' union. The reason I did this was the same reason anybody else disaffiliates from a students' union, which is broadly, we had to pay them a lot of money, and we really didn't get anything that was of direct benefit to us as a, as a society in return. Um, so uh, that makes me think that affiliation is percent, uh, potentially a double-edged sword for the uh, non-sports uh, the non-sports societies, and I think it might be a choice. Again, as I said earlier, societies. is that something to do with being Catholics? The non-sports societies. Is this like? <laughs> I I enjoy both your mental image and the pun, but no, it's not the case. Uh, sports societies, from my admittedly uh, limited and uh, long societies too, and societies for equality reasons. Uh, Sean, you are a disruptive element here. <laughs> I like the idea of you walking to the Welcome Week in the Freshest Fair. There's two sports hall. One is for the kind of uh, sports, and like non-sports. Non you just walk yeah. in and it is just non-sport. <laughs> now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? And here, live to set this week's correlation question, it's Wonky's associate editor. Thank you, Rachel. This week's question is deceptively simple. Does the number of students studying languages at an English HE provider in 2017-18 correlate with the number of students studying historical or philosophical subjects? I should clarify, this is FTE students from all domiciles and all modes of study. Yes, but does it correlate? I say no. I say no. I think modern languages are smaller than historical and philosophical studies. Well, I think yes, just for no other reason apart from I said before I even read the question that I'd go for yes this week. Yes. Yes, it does. A stunning correlation. R squared is 0.72. As to why, your guess is as good as mine. The Open University has been excluded from the graph as an outlier, but otherwise all the data HESA has published is in there. As a special gift to loyal listeners, you can change the subject area on the X and the Y axis of the visualisation to hunt for other correlations as you would Easter eggs. See you next time.
And finally, uh, we finish this week with a story covered by the Times, which reported that hundreds of students with the worst A-levels are going on to get first-class degrees each year. So, DK, what do you make of this? Well, uh, so this story has been absolutely torn into on uh, HG Twitter. People have been really up in arms about this. And on the face of it, you can see why. So here's universities uh, taking students that might not have had the chance to meet their full academic potential in the compulsory sector um, and then uh, taking them through university to the extent that they get a first class degree now you would say on the face of it that is marvelous the argument i think the times were making and it's often difficult to tell with the times precisely what argument they are making is that uh obviously it's an issue with uh dumbing down because students that don't do very well at a level uh do do very well at degree level and uh, the counter very obvious counter argument is uh, i mean university study is a different species of thing students study in a different way and for different purposes and that uh, we already know a levels are not a spectacular predictor of um um a spectacular predictor of uh success at university anyway there are lots of academics that um in response to this tweet so well, actually, I only got three Ds at A level. Well, uh, so I, I suppose when it comes to things about standards, I mean, the the the, the argument that there is great inflation or, or claims about that have been are not unique to this country. Um, uh, they happen elsewhere, and I think as someone who's from the United States, I've lived in the United Kingdom for uh, about twenty years and and a citizen here too now. But um, but coming looking at this with American eyes and, and hearing this talk about great inflation, I have a bit of a different perspective. You know, where I come from, uh, a professor or even a adjunct professor uh, gives a grade in a class, and that grade stands. And they don't need to have it moderated by everyone in their office. They don't need to have their exam checked by a team. They don't need external examiners signing off on things, people from experts from other universities or indeed universities in, in other countries. It's here. We have, you know, our module marks are checked by everybody else our exam questions are scrutinized our external examiners sign off on stuff and maybe these things are problems and maybe it, it you know we shouldn't have them i think we shouldn't have them i don't like them myself but you've got all that kind of stuff and then a minister doesn't like uh the, the you know hey look there's more first class has uh, happening now than there were in my day must be a problem um i i i just really it, it makes my my skin crawl i i you know is there great inflation you know Possibly, I don't know. Uh, I'll leave it to DK to tell us more about uh, evidence uh, for and against. I'm not a statistician, and I don't try to be. But I think that um, you know, in terms of the standards and and quality assurance, I mean, uh, an American perspective would be a lot of people here don't seem to be trusted to mark things by themselves. There's this constant checking by others, and it's like, how much more <laughs> does someone want? <laughs> there, that's my thought. Yeah, Sean. Oh well, I just love this story. But first of all, I looked at the numbers. And the number of students uh, graduating in the year that they were looking at, 2017, um, who had three Ds or lower entry, was 4%. So in terms of that debate, are too many students going to HU shouldn't be there? That's that's 4% out of a um, quarter of a million students. Uh, so it won't make that much difference. The number of those um, with three Ds or lower who got a first was less than 1% 
of the graduating students. But what I really loved about this story was it was absolutely about a developmental mindset that um, people develop at different rates. As you say, they respond to different disciplines and different teaching styles. And we have different stages in our lives. So lots of those stories were about people who'd had really rough teenage years or had left abusive families. And then they had flowered in higher education where they were supported by staff who got them and wanted their development. And as you said, went on to um, careers with earning potential, with increased confidence, with increased life satisfaction and improved mental health. So all the things that the Times really cares about. <laughs> and what I loved about this was every single tweet was this glorious success story. And so rarely does the higher education sector manage to tell a really powerful story about what we achieve with a single voice. And this was over and over again. And the Times journalists had to kind of apologise and say, um, those were great stories, thank you. Because in the end, um, they, you know, they had nothing to come back with. They just had to accept that people's lives are changed by higher education and that's a great thing. Uh, so that is about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes and don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to Sean and to Tom and to DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen And until next week, stay first class.